and welcome to this month's episode of Money Mountaineering with Peter Newarth, actuary and author, talking about what's your money worth. Today, we celebrate season two, episode one of a new series talking about the shared economy. Pete and his guest today, Steve Shirell, are in Santa Rosa, California, where it's a community of, it seems like, like-minded folks. And they're going to talk about Steve's amazing store. And to celebrate this idea, they are sharing a mic. So take it away, Pete. Thanks a lot, Hope. And um, and thank you, Steve, for joining me. And uh, I am going to embarrass you a little bit by telling the story. But first, I want to just give an introduction to this new series of podcasts we're doing. I mean, for the last 10 episodes, I've been talking about money and how the in the world of money, it's necessary to what you need to do to navigate through the, the world of money. And in particular, what's involved in planning for retirement and other important uh, aspects of that, that journey through life. Well, one of the uh, bumps in the road in my journey through life occurred uh, back in 2020 when my house burned down in one of the many wildfires that we have here in, in Santa Rosa. And, um, you know, it took me a while to recover. And, and it's part of why I, I love Santa Rosa so much is because this is a, this is a town that's very used to um, those who have lost their homes through fire and know what to do about that. Well, this was a couple of years later, and I largely recovered, and I wandered into uh, Stanroy Music, which is a uh, music store in downtown Santa Rosa, and I started looking at uh, drums, because among the things I had lost in the fire was an African djembe drum that I used to, I really loved, but I hadn't gotten around to replacing it, and the insurance money had run out, and, but... I wanted a djembe. And so I was looking at djembes and I, I asked uh, the, uh, the salesman, a guy, guy named Tim, he came over and said, what are you looking for? And I told him my house had burned down and I was looking for a djembe to replace uh, the one I'd lost. And he said, uh, well, just pick out what you want and just take it. And I said, what, really? And he said, oh yeah, do that. And come to find out that the reason I could do that was because of Steve, the, the owner emeritus of Stan Roy. And so I wanna talk about that with Steve and the fact that rather than pay money for that thing, I got the thing itself. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about what does it mean to actually share things as opposed to going through the medium of exchange, which is money. So Steve, tell me, please, why did I, why did I get that djembe and what do you do in there at Stanroy? Well, at the time, I actually was not owner emeritus. I was still owner at the time. Now I, I wear the purple robe at graduations, but um, it was how I was raised and what allowed us to keep uh, Stanroy from closing in 2013 when the current owners had run it into the ground, for want of a better word, um, was sadly my father's inheritance. And I inherited the money never felt like mine. The responsibility felt like mine. And what I had to do was think, what would my father do with that money? But what would the next generation do keeping that in mind? Because that's what the next generation is for. 
And, you know, I had worked 30 years at that store. One of the, probably one of the greatest coins of the realm that my father taught me was loyalty. And someone told me that different generations have different words to describe their relationship with work. And baby boomers, it's company man. And I always said that never as a disparaging term, but something it's like my father would say, if you're not, if you're not loyal to the place, if you're not 10 toes in, go work somewhere else where you are. And uh, so after 30 years there, it was either watch the place go under or, you know, salvage this store where he and I used to go into there in the 50s when he bought 78s. So we go way back. <laughs> well, Stan Roy has become a real institution in, in Santa Rosa. I mean, it's not just a store. I mean, it's a, almost a community center of sorts. So that um, goodwill or loyalty that, that you've been able to generate has paid many, many dividends. And can you tell me a little bit more about the things that go on at, at Stan Roy Music these days? Well, I, th I think one of the things that's as long as I have been there and from what I know historically is true is having brass and woodwind repair. And there are other stores that can fix a guitar, although we still get most of the referrals for stringed instrument repair. But there's no one, you know, you have to go to the Bay Area or ship it back to Badger in Wisconsin or whatever in order to get a flute fixed. And if you've got a gig that day and your pad fell off your flute, you need it fixed now. And so that's something that you can't get on the Internet, at least not. I mean, yes, you can ship it somewhere and you can find that person on the Internet, but you can't walk in and get it taken care of. Right, right. And uh, I imagine uh, a lot of people not only share their music with the uh, with the repaired instruments, but they share their stories and their and their um, their expertise. And there's a lot of sharing that goes on in that in that music, isn't there? Uh, there are, and it's you know that's one of the things, especially the teachers, uh, private teachers, teachers in the school system. The only way they can have their programs is to have people like Gary and Bruce in there fixing their horns. They, I mean, they could not do that. Mm -hmm. And if I had brought a picture of all of the uh, horns that are waiting to be fixed in summer repairs, you would appreciate. You know, where do you go? You can't mail out hundreds and hundreds of these instruments, and they all come to us. Right. So that's right. that is something we offer that's unique. And there really is a music scene in, in Santa Rosa, isn't there, that Santa Rosa is, is really a part of. I mean, I, I saw your, your stage set up at the at the Railroad Square Music Festival, for example. And we do, I mean, that's our I, I suppose that's a sharing. I, I always thought of us in an advertising economy, but but certainly to you know, to underwrite stages for uh, the Railroad Square Music Festival for Peacetown. Um, Stan Roy is uh, underwriting uh, the song service at the Lost Church, where they have three singer-songwriters every month get there and tell their stories about where their songs came from, perform them, and get an audience, some for people who've never had one before. I'm a real believer in the sharing economy because, as I say, money gets in the middle. And it's, it's not about, I mean, what do we use money for except to buy things, services, experiences? So why can't we just share those experiences and things directly? Oh, and we, we can. It's not common. As I mentioned before, if someone wants a guitar, it's really nice not to have to figure out how many sheep pelts they have that's worth that guitar. And to have a medium of exchange that's agreed upon is helpful. But... I had someone come in and he needed a repair 
And uh, he was a web designer and a friend of mine needed some work on his website. And I said, I'll fix that, you fix his. And friends are friends, so I didn't need that completion of that transaction. Well, it, it does sound like you have a somewhat different view of what money is and what it represents in, in our society than, than many. Then. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, I mean, I use it for the same thing. I I try and invest wisely so that I'll get returns so I can continue, you know, getting a djembe when someone needs one or, or right. whatever. But in a sense, it's it's the same thing that you, when you write a book, telling people how they can best invest their money and understand the process, you know, you're doing that because you want this to be a better world. Right. And and it's nice if you get some sheet pelts back. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, getting the sheet pelts back, I mean, that that's that's one of the keys to whether an economy works, whether it's a sharing economy or a capitalist economy or or a gift economy. You know, I know you've done a lot of thinking about these kinds of things. And and so maybe you could share some of your thoughts about gift versus barter versus sharing, what those words might mean to you? Well, I, as we have spoken of before, I think that, that gifts are gifts. Uh, my mother always used to say, if it's not something that's given wholeheartedly, it's not a gift. And so, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, someone needs something you give, that's, that's as part of the economy because someone doesn't have. Why do you think it works so well in in Santa Rosa as opposed to in other parts of the world? I don't have any experience that other than you know other than you know trading money in other parts of the world. Uh, I've never you know I've never been a place long enough where I would know how they'd do anything other than to have Syrian pounds or you know, Turkish lira or whatever. It's like you you, cha you change money and you they change hands and you buy those things. Uh, the sharing would be, like I say, for me, that experience with the web designer where he needed a guitar fixed, Tony needed work on his website. That to me sounds, you know, it's sharing because people have expertise and they're using it and they're they're not using money, but they're but they would have had to if that weren't an option. Right. But there's also there's a trust and a connection that happens that seems to be more necessary than in a, in a more traditional economy. Amen. Because it's it's more human. I mean, we do forget, I think, at times what that that medium is just a medium. And, you know, there's stories and movies and books and all sorts of things about, you know, the movie Wall Street or whatever, where it's just, you know, corporate greed. Greed is good. You know, it's like, no, not for everybody. You know, what's good is we get to do this. We get to do this. Uh, that's important. That's what community is. Right. right. And one of my favorite things to say on the topic is, what is the source? What's the etymology of the word economy? It's the Greek oikos, which means home or house. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, economy and ecology both come from the same word. Right. It's, it's all about home. Right. So home means if you're trading in an economy that's based on home, everybody you're trading with is your family. Right, right. And that's, uh, that's different. And almost of necessity, that's a local phenomenon. And it's, right. and it's a real world phenomenon. 
It's it's local. I mean, having been places, having like worked disaster relief in the southeast, I have a lot of kin that I never would have met if I hadn't mucked and got houses and worked tent kitchens and stuff in the Ninth Ward, whatever. And now these are people. So, you know, there's a woman that I worked with after uh, 2016, the floods in Baton Rouge, and she tapped into tent kitchen fed thousands, she was great. And she just got it, she got it, she made it work. And later she was diagnosed with MS and she needed a new HVAC system for her home. And she had no money to do that. And at the time I did. So if I hadn't worked for this woman who just won my heart, I, you know, I would say, yeah, people need stuff all over the place for, you know, for $5,000. Think of what I could do with, you know, feed the children or do whatever. There's a whole lot of things you could do. Well, you know, and I would like to be able to do more. But when someone that I've worked for who just brought it in the best sense of community and humanity, uh, you know, I can't I, I, I can't not. You know, right. at one point you you started a commune. Is that right? Yes. I did. Can you tell me about a little bit about that? Because that's a different way of. It is a different way. It's just one of those notions, you know, of 55 years ago where that was the thing to do. You know, it's like you come of, come of age at the summer of love and all of a sudden there are all these options that you never had from your 50s upbringing. And, uh, and that was just one of the things to do. And which is a whole bunch of kids from the city. Let's go out and live in the country like we do. What we well, how'd you do? I mean, did you, where, where was it? And how, how, uh... Douglas County, Oregon, just outside of Riddle, Oregon, population 900, property right on Cow Creek, and a beautiful place. Problematically, there wasn't, economy was a problem there because the only place you could get jobs was in a lumber mill or Hannah Nickel mine, which they finally shut down for numerous cancers directly related to it. But what was the most difficult thing was the number of times we were shot at. And I had two small children at the time. And after a while, it was just like, this is this is not the place. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, there is, so there is a, I mean, it does seem that for, for these kinds of sharing economies to work, there has to be an affinity and there has to be pretty deep connection between, I mean, you mentioned the word family, but I think it can go beyond family to, you know, community and others that feel, feel a connection. I mean, like I say, I, I think here in Santa Rosa, most people feel very connected because of the fires and they, you know, everybody's either been touched by the fires or they know somebody who's lost their home. Right. And there's a, so there's a, there's a bond that I think fosters that sharing mm -hmm. and it's not just giving when somebody needs it's just sort of sharing of resources that that i see is and, and that's true and maybe kin is a better word because family we usually think of dna and and in-laws but i i tend to think of it like i said came of age at the summer of love so obviously you know there is that notion that was very popular then but kinship works you know and it is community and i think what works best is when those words are kind of blurry, when we're not quite sure because it seems so connected. If it's not connected, it ain't Canada ain't family. Yeah. Well, that, that to me, I mean, I think that is one thing we're seeing in the in the in the traditional economy is 
things are, you know, we're getting more and more precise as to how we measure value and try to quantify and monetize. And when it's just, you know, a, a djembe or a, or a repair or something, it's, it's really hard to put a price on that. It's, it's a, you know, and once you put a price on it, then there becomes a market. So there's something different about the dynamics between a market economy and a sharing or community-based economy. I actually do have a coin of the realm for free repairs. And I was only called on it once in at least 25 years of saying this is someone would come in and it would be a simple repair. It would take me more time to make uh, go to the computer and make them a bill and have a transaction. Right. You know, and I would often say, you know, bring me some real work, I'll, I'll charge you. But what I would always say to answer everybody for at least the last quarter century, when someone says, what do I owe you? My response is always your heartfelt thanks. And only once, only once in a quarter century, did someone actually know what I was asking for? And he was probably a young 20 something. And I said that, and he kind of reared back a little bit. And he said, that's a lot. And I said, you're the first person who got it. And no one's gotten it since. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of a newbie to, to Santa Rosa. I mean, I just, I bought my property in 2012, but you've been around, um, in and around this, this area for, for a while. Um, how has it changed? Well, the, the population is one of the biggest changes that you feel as someone who was born here in the 40s. I think it wasn't really, I think, until probably when I was 12 and taking geography at Herbert Slater Junior High. They're now middle schools. And, uh, and you know, so we talk about populations of things. It's the first time I think I actually appreciated that Santa Rosa had a population, that is. And it was 25,000 people. And it's more than six times that now. And the funny stories, of course, are where people come up and they will complain about all the people moving up here. And they said, yeah, when we moved up here from LA in 82, it was a much nicer place. And I look at them like, do you hear what you just said? Because <laughs> they're thinking all these people coming in after they came. Right. Well, change, change is hard, but- um... The only constant we have. Right, right. <laughs> well, what do you like? I said, I'm. I've been. Um, you know, I was. I was a victim of the fires. I was also a survivor of the fires because in 2017, um, my house did not burn. And of course, when 3,000 other houses did burn, I felt compelled to offer my houses to to those who had lost their shelter. But that's when I thought that this is a very special place and. What do you see as the effect of the fires on on Santa Rosa? Have you, you you've, you've been through more than a few. Uh, yeah, actually, 2017, with it, with the exception of jumping the freeway because we didn't have Hurricane Force One winds in '64. But if you look at the '64 fire and you look at the Tubbs fire up to 101, it's almost a exact footprint. Right. So uh, I re one of my dearest friends at the time was working on the fire line there. And sadly, right near where a lot of poison oak was burning and he was unrecognizable. But, you know, people pitched in, uh, you know, to do that. But that's I mean, I don't think that's unique to Sonoma County. I, I think you that's what you do. And that's one of the things that often brings people together uh, working in the southeast. 
in red states coming from California and everybody knows that's where I'm from, you know, it's like what I, I never got any, you know, no one called me hippie, though I would have taken that as a badge of honor. But, you know, people just appreciated that someone got in a car, drove 2,500 miles on their own dime and saved their home. Right. So I think that's one of those things of it's not just I mean, if, you know, I guess for hippies and Hindus and New Agers, you know, that sort of third chakra stuff of economics, uh, you know, governance, education, all of that stuff, that is the family of families. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take much to go somewhere and pitch in where people realize it's like this guy from California, from that place that we always say nasty things about, just came and saved our home. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting because that gets to another question I was going to ask you is about the scalability, because like I said, very I, important. I, I think, you know, it's, it, I see wonderful things happening here in Santa Rosa, but I think in some sense, it's because there's only two or maybe three degrees of separation between any two people in the, in the city and the county. Right. To what extent is this kind of thing scalable? It's tough. It's, I, I have a very dear friend from from school and from commune um and a, a great uh historian of pre-soviet russian history and just a great mind and and he says that our brains neurologically can only really deal with the village level and now we have as my father often said the world has access to itself like it's never had before so all of a sudden we are inundated with stories from, uh, you know, I mean, 100 years ago, you, you had to, you know, wait for the telegraph across the pond or whatever. And now, you know, you see things real time all over the world. How do we wrap our village brains around that? That is one of the biggest problems we have. As Well, I guess one thing is the village gets bigger and more people move in. But that's... But if you, I mean, I suppose, and I actually, and I didn't ask yesterday, I said, so what's the population of a village? But I know we're talking about something where you can walk the, you can walk the village in a day and you know everybody there, or you at least know, uh, well, that's the guy who lives next door to right. Joe. Well, that's what, that's the, you know, the two degrees of separation. Right. And that's why I think, I'm, I'm not even sure government scales, because you've got people making decisions about your life. You might not, if you don't know them, you want to know the person, somebody that knows them. And, and that, that seems to be one of those necessary but not sufficient conditions for, well said. for, for a community. Yeah. Um, but there's also a, a real world aspect. I mean, you said you've done a lot of traveling and you sort of transfer, you know, you've done, uh, well, you've hitchhiked 50,000 miles or so. <laughs> so. What else have you seen that you that um, has brought back and, and informed the way you operate in the world? The simplest way I can put it is everywhere I've been is home. I didn't expect that. It wasn't an attitude that I thought, this is my planet. I, you know, this is everywhere I go is mine. I just imagined if I went to a high chaparral or a low desert or the Middle East or, uh, you know, I, I remember work, waking up the first morning in Istanbul and the Bosphorus has. You didn't hitchhike this. No, no, but I hitchhiked, but I, I, I did a lot once I got there. No, I, I took a BA. But, uh, uh, but I wake up the first morning there and you can smell the Bosphorus and it has a very unique smell. And I'll just leave it at that. It's not pleasant. I'm sure it's, you know, people are used to it there. 
And I woke up and I smelled it and I thought, where am I? And I was jet lagged. And I went, oh, phosphorus. Oh, I'm miserable. And I felt like I do when I come home from traveling and I smell my house and it smells like that. And everywhere I've been has been uh, a sense of home. So I just imagined that I must be an earthling. <laughs> I must be an earthling. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, would that the earth could be a community, but um, it sounds like you, you know, you still have those hippie values and there's plenty of hippies still around. Um, there's generations of them. Right. I work with three generations of hippies when I go do post-disaster relief right. after a hurricane. And yet, and yet, one of the interesting things about um, Sonoma, I, I, Sonoma County and Santa Rosa, is how diverse it is, and how many, you know, there are the there are hippies, and there are a lot of Mexicans, uh, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who are, you know, eighth generation or maybe not eighth, but fifth and sixth generation homesteaders, and um, yeah. and a lot of other, you know, immigrants and immigrants and outlaws mm -hmm, and, um, mm -hmm. what what do you make of this of this kind of diverse county that we live in well it's it may be not uncommon i know that there are places that are a little more monoculture and i think that we're lucky uh to have the uh, you know what diversity we do have we there are a lot of ways in which people think pretty white place, you know, and, and might look at that and going like, you know, we don't really, yeah, it's, you think it's diverse, you know, go to Oakland, you know, and so, I mean, the people here are the people who live here, work here, trade here, share here, and and why why it's how it is that makes it in the way that it is different from another place, I don't really know. I mean, there are places that certainly, where I've been where, they were very much community organized. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that they were much more monoculture, so it was easy. I see. You know, I mean, places where I've traveled in the Southeast a lot, especially because of that, there, there are a lot of places where there's not a lot of dissenting voices. Right. And yet here, here we have lots and lots of people who disagree, probably voted for different candidates oh, in yeah. the last election. Yep. And yet everybody seems to get along and look out for their neighbors. By and large, I haven't seen it come to blows yet. Right. So, so tell me, um, and we don't have that much more time, but tell me what you, what you're doing now in the community. I mean, you're very busy. I mean, I, I see you whenever I try to walk, wander in, I never find you because you're out doing something and taking care of something or looking in on something. I might be at the gym taking care of me. Well, um, well you, uh, most actually, when when people ask how how's what's retirement like, what what is that? And I say I'm trying to cut back to six days. Uh -huh. And when they ask how that's going, I usually say not very well. Uh -huh. So uh, and it's the time it's the time of the year when Gary in the shop will also be there on Sundays. He worked the Fourth of July as well because you know school starts in a month. We have hundreds of unrepaired instruments to get done. So. Right now, a lot of my time is is still at Stanway doing repairs. One of the uh, one of our main the person that I train to take most of the guitars off my bench is traveling as a guitar tech for a, a reggae band that's touring the entire country. So now I'm working his bench and mine. Oh, so you, I'm kind of stuck there. Well, a lot. But you you have you, <laughs> you have found time to write a couple of books too, right? 
Well, over the decades, sure. Oh, but aren't yeah. you working on that one now? Or? I am working on one so now. What, tell, me, tell me what you're working on. Uh, it's a disruptive dictionary. Disruptive for, dictionary. What is that? Well, as you probably know, disruptive, uh, I think it was in 90, somewhere in the 90s. I won't guess the year, but I have it in my book. Somewhere in the 90s, the word disruptive took on a new definition. And what that meant was groundbreaking or, you know, sort of taking the old stuff and, you know, as, as you were doing with sharing economy here. And so what I wanted to do was all of my books have been about language and consciousness. And I've just, they get more fine-tuned as I realize it's like, okay, that's like an old car that's, you know, still got a good generator and good tires and good this, and I'll part it out and put it in the next car. Mm -hmm. This is the car I hope will actually hit the road running. The purpose of a disruptive dictionary is to wake us up from the fact that we're used to using words without knowing what we're saying. I, I admit, I hold NPR to a higher standard. So when I hear them say, centered around, I cringe every time. My late brother, who was a, a journalist here for the Press Democrat, that was his pet peeve. So I have to keep that going in his honor. But uh, there are people that don't know the difference between compose and comprise. That's not just a nitpick grammar thing. There are words that absolutely spell disaster if we don't understand them. Okay, so let me uh, let me finish up with one uh, word that I'd like you to define as what what is what is money? What is money? Is money in your disruptive dictionary? It is. I have one of the chapters is called Home Economics, spelled with a K for Ecos, and um, and the subtitle is Accounting for Ourselves. I will probably say, uh, you know, you can read uh, the Big Short, or you can read Money Mountaineering, or there's a lot of things if you want to understand why in 2008 when the economy went to hell there were six, over $625 trillion invested in side bets on bets, what they call exotic financial instruments. So right up front, I will say, if you wanna learn about that, go talk to the people who really know that. I wanna talk about the fact that there's only one currency we have to spend, and that's the time and energy of our lives. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a, that's a great note to, to end this on because Time and energy really is all we have and what we do with it and how we share it and how we, how we it spend it and how we spend it. Is how really... we save it. I mean, we use yes. the economic terms That's for that right. very thing. That's right. Okay. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being here. This thank was you. really great. And it's the first of, I hope, many um, more interviews with local people who are doing good, really good things and helping this community become a really special place. So thanks very much, Steve. Thank you for this. Awesome conversation. I love what you said. Kinship, love, connection, and family. Like If we could just live by those principles, that would be a magical place. Right? Yeah, it would be a magical place indeed. <laughs> the Shared Economy, a fantastic conversation for season two, episode one of Money Mountaineering with Peter Newirth. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV, where you're watching this podcast and video. We very much look forward to episode two with a woman named Becca. And tell us a little bit about Becca, Pete. Well, Becca is a, uh, the, the manager of the local Barnes & Noble. So Becca is a big champion of brick and mortar, real life, local bookstores, sharing ideas, curating ideas, communicating ideas, and also runs uh, 
one of the open mics in town where artists and songwriters come and share their gifts and their their art. And um, we'll talk more about that next month. Beautiful. Thank you all so much for listening to Money Mountaineering with Peter Newer. Thank you, Steve. We really appreciate your time and your brilliance. Keep up the great work. Everyone, thank you for joining us. We will see you again next month. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, proud to be here with you. Bye.